Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter number 3. We all are looking at this week, wondering what's going to happen, and the truth is none of us know. (laughs) But we do know this, the Lord is the Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords. He, He really reigns now, but his final reign will be complete when he comes back, and so we look forward to that. And our hope is in Christ and in his reign. And Jesus, it's a fact, he shall reign, and we look forward to that day. And actually, that ties in very well with our message here this week. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, and our text this morning is verses 13 through 17. But really, this is a continuation of last week's sermon. We started last week in verse 8, and here Peter transitioned from speaking to different groups within the church to now speaking to the entire church as a whole. And he's speaking this main body of his letter here about how to glorify God by being like Christ while we suffer. And we said that he speaks to the church here as a whole from verse 8 all the way through verse uh, chapter number 4. And the question we're going to ask, we asked last week and we're going to ask next couple weeks, is how can the church glorify God And particularly in this context that these believers were in, they were suffering. So while they are, while we are suffering. In verse 8, I want you to look back at that text. I just want to walk through these verses to help us remember what we have been looking at. In verse 8, it says, finally, all of you, and this is speaking to the church, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love a tender heart, and a humble mind. So the first answer we gave was, is we're to be like Christ to the church. So how are we to glorify God while we suffer? Well, be like Christ to the church. And then he transitions to say, we're to be like Christ to the world. Look at verses verses 9 through 12. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 34, which gives Old Testament support for his teaching here. In verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then in our text here this morning, he continues to instruct the church. What we're going to see this morning is that Christ wants us to set, aside, set apart uh, Christ, or should I say God wants us to set apart Christ as the Lord of our hearts. So look up in verse 9. You can see Peter gives us a, a negative and a positive. He says, don't repay evil for evil, but bless. We're going to see the same thing down in verses 13, 14, and 15. He's going to say, don't fear but sanctify or set apart Christ as holy in your hearts. Look at verse 13. He says, this is our text for this morning. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Therefore, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So there's the negative, and then he contrasts that with the positive in verse 15. And I want to explain this before I read this verse, because this is going to set up really the rest of our sermon. 
And if you really have to understand verse 15 to understand this, this paragraph here. If you look at verse 15, he gives a command. Now, it might surprise you what the command is, especially if you have an ESV translation. The command is actually the word holy. In fact, that's the only imperative found in this paragraph here. And so his, and sometimes in some translations, it's translated sanctify. So sanctify is the idea of making someone holy. And so the imperative here is to, in verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. So what, what's he saying here? Well, if you have an NASB, it probably does a better job of translating it. Frankly, even the New King James does a better job. The, the word holy means to set apart. So the command here is to sanctify or set apart Christ as the Lord of your heart. So read verse 15. I'm going to kind of give my Ben Ice translation here, kind of mixture of NASB and, and really what I think this text is saying. So I'm going to read verses 15 through verse 17. It says, but in your hearts, sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So how can the church glorify God while suffering? And the answer from our text this morning is that we glorify God when we set apart Christ and our hearts as the Holy Lord. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless the preaching of his word here this morning. Father, we present ourselves to you this morning as your children who desire to grow. We want to grow in knowledge, in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to grow in our relationship. We want to grow in our faith. Lord, we want to grow in our obedience. We want to bring you more and more glory with our lives. And so I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, give grace and insight, illumination to the text of Scripture. May Jesus Christ be lifted high because that is the purpose of this word, the preaching of your word, that is the purpose of our lives. We live for you, Lord. So I pray that you will open our minds and may we trust you here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna start off with telling you really a story that I read this past week that I think speaks well of our text, helps us to really understand our text. There's a pastor I follow and he writes many articles, and he served at a church in, um, in uh, at Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. for a while. Now he's a pastor in Virginia. His name is Garrett Kell. He was 24, or he was 20 years old in 1998, and uh, he, this is his, a picture of him at that time. And uh, he went to Virginia Tech. He grew up in a Christian home, but by this time in college, he had completely walked away from Christianity. He um, had his own little frat house there. He had three girls that were his roommates. One was his live-in girlfriend. He spent most of his time smoking weed, doing cocaine, drinking, and living an immoral life with these, these girls. On October 31st, 1998, Halloween night, he decided to throw a big party, a big bash. And so in order to really have a great party, he invited a lot of his friends, and he thought of this friend that he had in high school, that he did a lot of this kind of stuff with in high school. His name was Dave, so he decided to invite Dave to come. 
And so Dave came to this party. He was going to spend a couple days with Garrett. So Dave came to this party, and this is, this is Dave right here. And when he showed up, Garrett realized something was different now about Gabe. Or, or not Gabe, sorry. I saw Gabe back there. Dave. <laughs> Spelled the same way now. Uh, and he's noticing there's different about Dave. Dave sat down in his room, and, and he began to you know, talk about his life and what he was doing now. And Garrett started talking about what they were going to do at the party. He said he had set aside some weed for him. He actually had a girl that he was going to be able to spend the weekend with. And so, you know, Garrett thought he'd set Dave up pretty well here. And Dave stopped him, and he said, no, actually, I, I'm now a follower of Christ. And I'm not going to do these things. And I'm gonna, I'll come to your party, and I'll sit there and be a part of everything, but I'm not going to actually participate in any of the sinful activities. Well, this, this kind of shocked Garrett. How, how do you think Garrett responded to this? Yeah, he was, at, he was upset about it. I mean, he's ruining his party here, right? In fact, he laughed at him, made fun of him. He mocked him during the party. Everyone really in the group started mocking him. You know, he was the one that wasn't drinking. He was the one that wasn't doing drugs. People, people would offer him drugs or alcohol, and he would re- refuse it. And, you know, they would make fun of him. And they'd say things like, you got some kind of disease or something. What's wrong with this guy? And then he would say, well, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. And they would, oh, poor guy. He's missing out on life. And they would, they would ridicule him. After the party the next day, uh, Dave decided to sit down, down again with Garrett and tell him really why he was li- living this life. Garrett was very confused. Garrett was very upset at Dave for this. In fact, he at that moment called, called Dave uh, Mr. Religious, told him he was an idiot for not drinking, and really just came completely against his friend. And in some sense, you could say he persecuted him with social rejection. And I give you this illustration here this morning because I think this is really a good example of probably what most of us, if we're experiencing some type of persecution, probably the most common persecution that takes place in the world uh, for Christians is this social rejection, isolation, verbal attacks, and definitely it can get to be physical and all that. But a lot of us experience or have experienced something like this, right, where people come against us because of our faith in Christ and At the very end of our sermon, I'll tell you what happens here with Garrett and Dave, kind of help us wrap up our sermon. But I want to just highlight Dave here for you and just think about what Dave was feeling and thinking as he walked into that party, as he walked into that week with Garrett. Here, Dave took a stand for Christ. When you stand for Christ, when you face persecution and suffering, and really any type of suffering, even if it's financial or physical outside of even Christian suffering, any type of suffering we face, there, there are temptations that, that press down on us, aren't there? We can, we can have fear overwhelm our emotions. Someone like Dave might be afraid of whatever everyone's going to think about him at the party. I mean, he's the loser at the party. Everyone else is, you know, they're the winners, you know, and he's rejected. Sometimes when we are facing suffering, we, we fear what's going to happen to us and what's going to happen to our relationships or what's going to happen to our life. There can be a sense of hopelessness, like things aren't going to change. I imagine after a couple weeks of Dave spe- uh, speaking to Garrett about Christ, I imagine he probably thought, like, this guy's pretty much hopeless, right? We, we can feel like sometimes we're alone or maybe there's no hope for the future for us. When, when we're suffering, we can get anxiety and, and we have this self-dependence that governs our spirits Sometimes our consciences are tempted to ignore God and we can make excuses for our sin. And all these temptations for suffering actually are addressed by Peter here in our text. 
And what is the problem that we have when we're fearful, when we are hopeless, when we're self-dependent, when we really just want to give up? What's the problem we face? Well, what he's going to identify in this text here is the problem that we have when we have those kind of temptations that overwhelm us and we give in to them is that that represents a person who is not living as Christ as if Christ is the Lord of his heart. A fearful and hopeless and anxious person is a person who has himself sitting on the throne of his own heart. So in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, Peter commands the church to, to set apart Christ as the holy Lord Exalt him as the holy Lord of your heart. So how can the church glorify God while suffering? And so this one, Peter focuses on our hearts and actually setting apart Christ as the Lord of our hearts. And so our first point we're going to look at here this morning is that we are to set Christ as Lord over our hearts. And that means he's the Lord over our fears. What does that look like? to have Christ be the Lord of our heart. So it means he's the one who rules over even our emotions or even things like our fears. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. When Jesus Christ is the Lord over our fears... You don't need to fear because of the hope you have in Christ of future blessing. And that's what those two verses teach us there. Observe the parallels between verse, if you look at verse 13 and 14, notice they're, they're actually parallel sentences. They state the same truths in kind of a different way. And, but I wanted you to kind of notice there's really three parallels. There's the parallel of, of suffering, of trusting Christ for future blessing, and then the continued doing good works. So first of all, notice the parallel of suffering. He writes in verse 13, he says that some might actually fear harm coming to them. And then in verse 14, they might suffer. So their harm and suffering are parallels there. And both these verses demonstrate the real, the real difficulty and terror that we sometimes face in suffering. And that is we feel like harm might come to us or we feel the pain of suffering. Each one of us Frankly, no matter what, where we're at in life, we all experience some type of difficulty, right, in our life. And then notice the parallel of their good works. Verse 13, they're trusting the Lord by being zealous for what is good. So they're pursuing the living for Christ and being zealous for good works. Verse 14, the parallel to that is for righteousness sake. So they're, they're doing good for righteousness sake. So here Peter's encouraging believers, continue to do what's right. And honestly, if you read through 1 Peter over and over, all he, he keeps talking about doing good behavior, doing good works, you know, doing what is right. And so we're to do that within the civil government, at work, in our home, within the church. So over and over, he's saying, like, keep doing what's right even if you face suffering. And what's the reason for that? What's the reason we don't have to fear other people harming us or the difficulty of suffering? Well, he gives those reasons in verse 13 and 14 too. And so he gives the parallel. First one, in verse 13, look, it says, who is there to harm you? In verse 14, it's the promise, you will be blessed. And these, these are really parallel promises that there's a hope in the future of future blessing. Now you look at those verses, you look at those promises, you might ask yourself, what, what's he talking about there? What's he talking about? You will be blessed and there is no one who can harm you. 
Well, look back in verse number 9. You can see really the context of this. Remember from last week in verse number 9, he promised that there's a future blessing coming. He says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. That last phrase there, that you may obtain a blessing, is a look to the future, to the future inheritance that we have in Christ. In other words, that's our time, our home in heaven, that we're going to be with Christ. And I talked about last week what a blessing was, and that was something traditionally done by the Jewish fathers to their firstborn sons. You know, sorry to everyone else, it's not a firstborn. But they would give the inheritance to them, they would bless them, and that was really a promise that they were going to receive the inheritance. Kind of like we do today with a will, right? We give a will to hopefully all of our children, unless maybe they're not going to use it for the right purposes. Maybe you wouldn't do that. But it's not just for the firstborn, but it's really a promise. A will is a promise that those um, who you have put in that will will receive an inheritance. So that's what he's saying here. It's like, listen, you bless now because God has blessed you. And in the future, God has an inheritance for you. He has a, a blessing for you. So going back down to verse 14, he's saying, if you suffer for righteousness sake, that's what Christians, that's what happens to Christians because we're in Christ. We're associated with Christ. We're going to suffer for righteousness sake. He's saying you will be blessed. There's this future inheritance that we're going to receive. So we, we look forward to that. But then look back in verse 13, because remember, there's, these are parallel, really, sentences. And the parallel to that is what? Who is there to harm you? Now, what does that mean? If you look at that verse, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? There's a lot of modern preachers that take this text right here, kind of pull it out, and they use it really as a promise. And they, uh, they promise that if you are following Christ, you're doing good, if you have enough faith, then you won't be harmed. So, you know, you're never going to get sick or you're never going to have a problem in your life if you just follow Christ and you do what is good. Let me mention a couple guys I was looking up, and I don't have time to go through quotes, but Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Bill Johnson of Bethel Church, these three are, are guys that have used this text in this way. So they take this out of context, and they basically make a promise to you. And none of us want to experience harm, right? So what they do is they look at this text, and they say, hey, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? So if you just do what's right for Christ, you're going to have a great life. You're not going to experience any harm. God will protect you. And that seems like a great promise, doesn't it? You're like, oh, I'm going to grab onto that and put that in my pocket, you know. But that's just not actually what that verse is teaching. So what is this talking about? Well, Peter was attempting to put their focus actually on the future hope of resurrection. So this is what he's teaching. If you're a Christian, there is no permanent eternal harm that can come to you. If you're a Christian, there's no permanent eternal harm that can come to you. And why is that? Because your life and your body on this earth will soon die, but after death, you get to be with Christ, and at the last resurrection, you get a new body, and you have a new life with Christ. When you look at a text like this, your mind should recall martyrs, people who have come before us who have died for the faith, people like John Huss. I was looking up some different martyrs, and I've read a little bit about him in the past. And again, I don't have time to tell his story, but he was a faithful preacher of God's word. And they wanted him to recant his preaching of the gospel. He refused to do so. On July 6th, 1415, they tied him to a stake and they began to burn him alive. Now, why would someone willingly go to a stake and be burnt alive? And they offered, they said, if you just recant 
the preaching that you're preaching of the gospel, then you don't have to be burned. Like, we'll let you free. And, and he said this while he was burning and dying. He said, Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray, have mercy on my enemies. And he began to sing and pray the Psalms until he died. Now, how can a person like that willingly go to death? Because he has hope in something beyond death. He has hope in new life in Christ. Many men and women like John Huss have greatly suffered persecution like that and have gone willingly to their death and they had a hope for future glory. In fact, would you do this? Go back to Luke chapter 21 with me, if you will, or you can look in your handout. It's actually in there as well. This is the, this is the text that Paul Patingo read for us this morning, Luke chapter 21. There's a really curious statement that Jesus says in Luke 21, that if you read it, it might confuse you a little bit. He's describing the last days, and if you look at Luke 21, 16, he says, Jesus promises to the disciples that you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. So that's some pretty bad things happening to you, right? Jesus is promising this is going to happen to the disciples and to those who follow Christ. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's a pretty bad thing that happens. And then look at verse 18. He says, but not a hair on your head will perish. Now that, what does that mean there? Not a hair on your head will perish. Now, that's kind of a strange thing to put in there, isn't it? What's he mean by that? How is it possible that you can experience death, but yet a hair on your head won't be perished. It's because Jesus was giving these disciples hope in the resurrection and the resurrection. In other words, even if your body dies, you will not be harmed, permanently harmed, because you will receive a new body after death. And praise God, that includes hair. That's the one I'm holding on. That's the promise in the scripture I'm holding on to right there. So, and all of us that had that problem right there. And look at verse 19. This is actually very interesting too. He says, by your endurance, you will gain your life. So here Jesus, again, teaches the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And so go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. So there in that text, Jesus promises that not a hair on your head will be, will be harmed, will perish, because you're going to have a resurrected body. And so that's what he really, we see here back in 1 Peter 3, 14, when he's saying, you, you won't be harmed, he's saying, listen, there actually is a promise for you of a resurrection. And God is looking over you. So look at ver the end of verse 14, 1 Peter 3, 14. Here he says to them, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Well, why not? Why, why shouldn't you fear? Why shouldn't you be troubled? Well, the Lord is watching over you. Think about this way. If, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, and he's the Lord of all, who is, who is watching out for you? It's Jesus Christ. It's our God. He looks out for us. In fact, look at verse 12. He, he has just said this in verse 12. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. In other words, he's present with them. He sees your life. He knows the pains that you're going through. In fact, even more so, Jesus Christ experienced what it meant to be human. He still is human, but he experienced the pains of being human and look at verse 12. He says, he hears our cries. He listens to our prayers. He cares about what you care about. When you, when you cry out to him, he cares about what you're saying to him, how you're, 
what you're praying about to him. So he is with you now, and listen, he's caring for you, and he will carry you through to the end, to life eternal, to the next life to come. So we don't have to fear now because Jesus Christ is our Lord. He oversees all, but also he is the Lord of our own life. So no harm can come to you. Not a hair in your head will be lost because soon we will experience the blessing of being with Christ. In our country, there's a lot of fear, isn't there? Fear of a virus, fear of the future of our country, fear of what's going to happen to our economy. And what's interesting in 2020 here is this fear is actually somewhat of a virtue. As people are presenting it, not only having fear, but also kind of presenting the, displaying your fear for all to see, whether it be on social media or even visibly in some ways. It's, it's seen as if the more fearful you are in some sense, the more virtuous you are. But really a, dr- a life driven by the fear of trouble in this world is not a virtue. It's actually living a worldly life. When you live overcome by fear and motivated by the fear of trouble in this world, you're living as if Jesus Christ is not the Lord. And you're living as if there's no future inheritance. There's no future beyond death. You're afraid of this life, what's going to happen, because this is all you have. And the reality, if you're an unbeliever, frankly, this is the best life they get. They don't realize the next life to come is is worse for them. There should be actually some sense of reason for them to fear, and hopefully they come and fear God and turn to him. But for those of us who have Jesus Christ as our Lord, we don't have to fear. And to fear means that we actually live as if Jesus Christ is not our Lord. So what's the answer to a Christian who is tempted to fear? Look at verse, the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In verse 15, but... On, on the opposite and the contrary to that, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Our heart represents really that inner person that governs our life. Every, every thought, every emotion, every decision that you make comes from that, that heart, the inner decision that you, the, the, the inner heart, the inner person that you have. And for the Christian, our inner hearts should be the throne room of Christ. The command really, therefore, in verse 15, is it's not to make Christ holy or to make him Lord. He already is holy. He already is Lord. It's, it's to enthrone him as the holy Lord in your heart. Every one of us should bow before the Lord, for, before Jesus Christ as the Lord, and that should take place within our hearts. In fact, we don't, again, we don't have time to go through all these different texts, but at the end of verse 14 and beginning of verse 15 is a quote from Isaiah 8, 12 through 13. You can see it there on the screen. You can see the, the parallels between those, those texts there. If you look at Isaiah 8, uh, 13 on the screen there, you can see that he refers to God, and God there is the Lord of hosts. And so when, when Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 is quoting that we're to work to set aside Christ as holy in our hearts. He's referring to this text, and he's just referring to the Lord of hosts. Now, who is the Lord of hosts in Isaiah chapter 8? Who is that? Well, that's God, right? If you have um, this, you can't see it up here because everything's in caps, but your Bible probably has that in all caps. That means that's the name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. It's kind of all the same thing. So who is the Yahweh in, in Isaiah chapter 8? 
Who did Peter believe he was? Jesus Christ. So, which is another, again, another text that Peter highlights for us, that he believed that Jesus Christ was, was and is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And here, get the, get the picture of what Peter's doing here. He's saying, you should exalt Jesus Christ as God, as the Lord of your heart, of your life, and your heart should be the throne room for Christ. Therefore, that means that he should rule every part, every aspect of our lives. And so how can... How can the church glorify God while suffering? Will we set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts? And that means that we set him as Lord of our mind and our mouth. And we prepare, we are prepared to testify of our hope in him. Look at verse 15. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So here Peter instructs us to, to use our minds and our mouths to make a defense for the hope uh, we have in Christ. A person whose heart is living in submission to the Lord, for, to Jesus Christ as Lord, should have a firm foundation for why they have their hope in him. In other words, they should know what they believe. And they should then therefore be prepared to tell people what they believe, to give a testimony or defense for those Beliefs. And so that's why he writes there, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you the reason. The word defense there is the Greek word apologia. So it's where we get the word apology. We use that, wrong, that word kind of in an, a wrong way in our modern English. Right? We say, you know, I'm sorry for something. So we say, I'm sorry, I apologize. It's actually not a great way to use that word because the word apology means to give an offense. A defense, I'm sorry, a defense. And so if you do something wrong against someone, probably better to say, I'm, sor I'm sorry I was wrong, not I'm sorry I apologize. Because the word apology really literally means to give a defense or to give an answer. Uh, it's, it's to give a reasoned argument um, to someone about an answer that you have to a problem they present. This was used to describe a person who was in a courtroom who gave a defense for, um, for a case against them. Now, how many of you have ever been to a courtroom and actually had to be the defendant? Anyone ever done that? I've only had that once when I got a ticket for, um, for not putting my turn signal on. The reality is I actually did have my turn signal on, but he gave me a ticket for um, doing a U-turn. So I don't really know why he did that. So I thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to give my defense. And so I stepped up to the judge there and I told the judge, you know, I was ready to tell him my defense and I had it all, you know, scripted out my mind and the police officer was standing right there and the judge said to me you know well you're going to get four points and this fine if you plead um guilty if you plead um innocent but if you plead guilty then you can have your points taken away and you have a redu reduced fine and so i thought to myself how good is my defense right now <laughs> and i realized my defense wasn't that great at least especially since the police officer was right there and he probably could say whatever he wanted to so i Pled guilty, so didn't have a great defense. But that's the whole point. That's the whole point of that word. It's the idea that you're going to give a defense, an, an apology for what you believe. And Peter wants us to be ready to give a defense for what? What does he say there in verse 15? For the reason for our hope. And again, the hope is this confidence that we have, that we are in Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that Christ has done the work on the cross for us to have redemption and forgiveness. And it's really an assurance that, 
that we will soon experience the gift of life with Christ eternally after we pass into eternity. We have the gift of eternal life now, and soon when our life ends, we will enjoy that gift with Christ. Sometimes, again, we look at the word hope, and a lot of people look at that as wishful thinking. You know, it's kind of like the wishful thinking that, you know, um, maybe... Um, I was, I was going to say something else, but I thought I shouldn't probably make fun of something. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that in my own mind there. But, you know, it's kind of like maybe someone dreaming that there's going to be a white Christmas, right, in Southern California. You know, we can sing that song. Has anyone ever seen a white Christmas in Southern California? Okay, I probably should say that. Some oh, come, people say they have. Like, from, actually, from the sky. I'm not talking from the blow machines that they have. <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's not like I really hope, and I don't really have any hope, actually, it's going to happen because we live in a, in a warm state here. It's actually a strong confidence that something's going to happen. Kind of like I would say, I, I hope to see the sun rise tomorrow, right? I have a pretty strong confidence that's going to happen because it's, it's confidence based upon facts. The word reason there is, speaks of a logical um, explanation based upon facts. So our faith or our hope is based upon factual truth, right? We have a logical foundation based upon the authority of Scripture. And we should understand, we should understand the reason for our faith. And so let me quickly just give you maybe two applications of this right here. First, I think we need to think through and understand why we believe what we believe. This is a verse that is used by many people who call themselves apologists or those who do apologetics which actually I think is a great tool for us to, to understand what we believe, why we believe what we believe. It's a great tool to give us confidence for our faith. I don't think this text is, is calling on all of us to be Ravi Zacharias 2.0, right? But if there is one of those guys in here, girls in here today, that, that's great. Go ahead and do that. But I think this is for all of us here. I think it's a call for all of us to know what you believe and why you believe it. What do you believe? And why do you believe it? Based upon the authority of the scripture. So if our minds live in submission to Jesus Christ, then our minds need to understand what his word says. And our minds need to understand why we believe what we believe. And here, here's some common questions that, that I'm sure you've been asked, that I've been asked. And I think I would like to ask you, do you know the answers from the scripture, a reasoned answer for why you believe this. For instance, here's a question people ask. Who is God? So could you give that answer? Or how can a person have forgiveness? Or can I trust the Bible? Or why does God allow bad things to happen? Or, what does it mean to follow Christ? Or what is the purpose of life? Those are just basic questions that I think all of us as Christians should study the word of God and seek to know the answers to. Like, What's the answer to those questions? We, we have a simple faith that really any child can understand, but we also have a reasoned faith that all of us should study and seek to understand from the authority of God's word. I think the other application should be that we should be ready to tell people about Christ. In other words, each day that we live, we should expect that there are going to be people that are going to come across our path that are going to want to know the reason why we live the way we live. I mean, if you're living a life for Christ with him as Lord, your life's going to look a lot different than those around you. And people are going to want to know what the reasons for those are. And I think this is a call for us. Be prepared to give the reason for your hope in Christ. Our missionary of the week 
is Connect Two Ministries, Greg Barshaw. And we have been praying for him for a while. He's been undergoing chemotherapy and, and uh, just really the pains that are involved in that and some surgeries. And uh, this past week, uh, um, Carl t- talked to him and asked him for some prayer requests. And he relayed a story that I thought was appropriate for this. Greg really has a great testimony Uh, If you've been around him and really even his testimony in the hospitals of his faith in Christ, hope in Christ, and uh, he doesn't fear death, right? I mean, you don't know what's going to happen with his cancer and really the pain he's going through. He doesn't fear that. He has a great hope in the Lord. But also he relays really the hope of these Christians in Haiti. And if you go down to Haiti, you see these Christians down there, really everyone down there is poor, but especially the Christians and some of these children he takes care of who have been abused. And he tells of their hope. And here are, here are children who have been abused, who have been rejected by their parents, yet they turn in faith to Christ. And God works in such a way in their heart that at some point, many of them are able to actually turn and be able to even have forgiveness for those who have been so cruel to them. And he told a story about he was talking to a medical worker and was able to communicate to, to this person really the hope he has and the hope of those people down there. And, and this medical worker just really started breaking down and was like, wow, this is amazing what, uh, what, what you're talking about. And really it spoke to her heart. And what you see here is here, here was a man who was going through some suffering, Greg Barshaw going through suffering, and he had a reason for his hope. And he was ready, as this lady was standing in front of him, to tell the reason to her. And I think, really, that's a perfect example of what Christ is calling us to do. And and there's nothing that shines brighter than someone going through suffering that is able to shine Christ and be able to tell the reason for that. And so then we have three, that we should set apart Christ as the Lord of our spirits. And I think, therefore, this means that our spirit is ruled by Christ in gentleness and in worship of him. So look down in verse 15, he says, the very end of the verse, he says, yet do it, do it with gentleness and respect. How does your spirit feel when someone comes against you? Especially when you're doing what is right, when you're seeking to follow Christ, and they slander you, they seek to hurt you. How do you feel about that? Like, how how do you want to respond to them? Well, this is exactly what these believers were experiencing. In fact, look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, and just see the middle part of that verse there, verse 12. The scripture says that they speak against you as evil doers. And then look at chapter 3 and verse 9. He says they, they revile you, so do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And then look down in verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. You're slandered in verse 16. You're reviled. So these are verbal assaults upon a person. This is social rejection to a person. And the natural response in those situations is to do what? When someone rejects us, we want to what? We want to reject them. When someone hurts us, we want to hurt them. And so the natural response is to have our flesh take control and for us to take control and to be out of, therefore, out of control. That's why Peter, I think, says here, listen, you're to set apart Christ as the Lord of your heart with gentleness and with respect. Now, these two words should seem familiar to you. And these were words we studied, what, about three weeks ago when we studied 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Look back in verse 2. 
There he directs wives to have conduct that is reverent. Again, remember we said that word was fear. And it wasn't fear of your husband. It was fear of God. And the idea there is that you live in a way that is worshipful. Like you respond with conduct that worships God. And then in verse 4, we said women are instructed to put on the beauty of a gentle spirit. And again, this word gentleness, we said, was also translated meekness. We don't really use the word meekness anymore. But meekness, gentleness has the idea that you have this calm confidence in Christ. It's the idea that, that Christ is your Lord, so you, you're strengthened by him to go forward through whatever you're going through with calm confidence. And gentle person submits his heart and really his life to the control of the Lord. And therefore, he can walk through, he or she can walk through whatever suffering they're going through with really this calm confidence because Christ is the one who's in charge of their hearts. So when we're suffering, we're to set apart Christ as the Lord. He's to be the Lord over our spirit, and, or you could say our, our attitude, our temperament. When the burden of suffering, whether it be a person or something else, comes upon us, it kind of begins to crush us, right? We feel the weight of that upon us. What should you do? What should you do? I mean, the re natural reaction is to kind of gain control of this, to lash out at people. But I think, I think what he's calling us to do here is, is maybe really practically just to say it like this. Take a deep breath and pray. Acknowledge, Lord, you are the Lord of my life. And ask him to have control of your own spirit and worship him through that difficulty. I was think, trying to think of a good example of this. And I thought, you know, Paul and Silas in prison in Acts, probably a great example. You know, they've, they've been tortured. They're in prison, shackled. It's the middle of the night. And what are they doing? They're worshiping Jesus Christ in song. And what happens when the earthquake comes, you know, the doors come off. They could all escape. And the, and the jailer, he's all freaking out, right? In fact, he's suicidal. He's about to kill himself. And in this kind of gentle, we, can't, we don't know the tone of it, but it sounds gentle in the scripture. Paul says, hey, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And that gentleness, that really heart of worship gave Paul the platform to lead that jailer and his Christ to the Lord. And I think God uses that in that way in people's lives. And then the, the fourth way we're to set apart Christ as Lord is to be Lord of our conscience. And that means we maintain a pure conscience before him. Look at verse 16. He says, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. A conscience is a great gift from God, especially if it's calibrated by the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. The conscience is like a sensor in our soul that helps us know when we're doing something wrong, when helps us note when we're doing something right. For the Christian, we are to have our consciences ca calibrated to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which means we, we think about what does God's word say, what's happening around us, and what does Jesus Christ want me, therefore, to do? When, when we suffer, sometimes what can happen is we can kind of excuse our conscience, uh, make excuses to our conscience, and we can think, you know, maybe, maybe take, for instance, maybe someone's treating you in a, in a in a way that's wrong, and we can excuse our conscience and say, well, if they're treating me this way, then I can treat them this way. Or we, sometimes we can excuse our conscience by saying, well, I'm going through a lot right here. I deserve a break. Like, I deserve a break. I need, I need to escape from this. But, but in verse 16, Peter is instructing the church that 
during suffering, all the time, but especially during suffering when your conscience might excuse you, that's a time especially to, to fall under this, the lordship of Christ, to submit to him in your conscience. And then last, set apart Christ as Lord of your life, of your life. That means you are surrendered to his will. Look at verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And again, we see this activity of the believer. We are to do good. We are to endure suffering while doing good. But notice that little clause slipped in there. For it is better to suffer if that should be God's will. And that little phrase right there, should be of great comfort to every Christian in this room. Those words represent that God is the one who is in charge. Jesus is the Lord of our life and of this world. I think about I think about those going through suffering and probably one of the things we experience in suffering is feeling like life is out of control. I don't know what's going to happen this week, but definitely there's times in our society when it feels like things are out of control. We talked about that a little bit this morning. But this verse helps us to understand, even when things are really hard and very painful, that it's according to God's will. That's a really hard one to grasp right there. But we believe it, we trust it, and we surrender, therefore, our own lives to him. And we say, listen, God, you're the one in charge. I'm going to keep doing what? Keep doing good. But I'm suffering. I'm feeling pain. I'm going to keep following you. Last night I was putting one of my kids to bed, and I can't remember what we were necessarily talking about, but this quote came to my mind from uh, C.T. Studd, and that is that he has a poem that he's, he's written which says that only one life uh, will soon... Oh, I just forgot the line. Uh, there you go. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I, therefore, this morning looked up that poem, and I thought, this is a great one to kind of end our sermon with here this morning. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Own only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And he ends it with this. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And it's so much better to do good and suffer according to the will of God than it is to live a life of evil. So that's why he says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, my friend, brother, sister, if you're suffering in here, recognize that God loves you and he is in charge of your life. It might not be easy, but he knows, he hears your prayers, he's with you, and he has a great future in store for you ahead.
Let me finish with our story I started with, and that was about Garrett and Dave. Again, Dave had a great desire to see Garrett come to Christ, and that's why he went, really, to go see Garrett at Virginia Tech, and that's why he um, presented the gospel to him that week. And again, just think of this situation from Dave's perspective. Think of the fear that Dave would experience. Think of, really, uh, the answers that he had to give to Garrett for why he lived the way he lived. Well, Garrett, he came against Dave and just kept doing it. In fact, he wrote a letter to Dave after he left. This is what he said. He says, I want you to be careful that you don't go overboard, starting to get all weird on me. So this is Garrett to Dave. I mean, I know that going to church is a good thing and that God is real and all that kind of stuff. Like you really believe that, right? But if you don't watch it, you're going to miss out on what life is really all about. I know you're just trying to be a good old boy and all, but when you came down here and wouldn't drink, you looked like an idiot. I mean, you are just sitting there with a cork in your mouth. What's wrong with you? And that's hard to get a letter from like, like that from someone, isn't it? Or an email or whatever it was, some kind of communication. But wouldn't you know, God was working in Garrett's heart, even though he wasn't saying so. During that night at that party on October 31st, he noticed the peace that Dave had, and it really caused him much guilt. He threw a party the next weekend, Garrett did, and through that whole party, he says that he just felt dirty and confused. In fact, after that party, the next day, he sat in his bed, kind of in the stupor of the night before, and he started thinking about that. And he said, you know, God, if you're real, show me something. You know, people pray that prayer. And he looked down, and there under his bed, a little Bible was peeking out. It was a Bible his parents had given him before he went to college. He hasn't, hadn't seen it, didn't know why it was even down there, didn't even remember it was there. And he opened the Bible to Ezekiel chapter 18, and he read from the New Living Translation, the person who sins is the one who will die. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Put all your rebellion behind you. Find yourself a new heart, a new spirit. For why should you die? I don't want to see you die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. He opened his scriptures and began to read some other texts of scripture. God started putting people in his life. He went back for Christmas break and was doing drugs. And one time, one night and at about two o'clock in the morning, he was on his bed in his bedroom and he started thinking about Dave. And God brought Dave to his mind. He thought, I'm going to invite Dave over. Dave came to his house, again gave him the gospel. Dave was relentless in showing love and speaking truth to his friend, and a couple weeks later, Garrett came to faith in Christ. And I think, and now Garrett is a pastor in Virginia, of a Baptist church in Virginia. It's a neat how God, so, and actually this was a testimony he put on his blog, and he's written, like I said, a number of articles. Dave could have walked away from that, you know, good verbal relational persecution, right? In fact, honestly, don't, wouldn't you feel like doing that? Think about the fear of coming to Virginia Tech to a party, and you know you're going to be the only one that's not the cool one. He, he was ready with his mind to give an answer to, to uh, his friend Garrett from the Bible. And since the Lord was the Lord of Dave's spirit, he was gentle with him. His conscience resisted the temptations that he had once indulged in, and he, he lived his life for Christ and gave Garrett, the gospel, and God did an amazing thing. And it's not a promise that's always going to work out like that. 
But I think it's a great testimony of what God can do when we glorify God through suffering by living like Jesus Christ. So really the question before us here this morning is this. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your heart? Is he the Lord of your heart? Does he rule over your fears or do your fears rule you? Is he the Lord of your mind? Are you, are you prepared to testify about the hope that you have in Christ? Is he the Lord of your spirit, of your temperament? Does he control your heart? Is he the Lord of your conscience? Are you sensitive to him and go to him for cleansing? Do you live and believe that Jesus Christ you live like and believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. And I would say, friend, if you're in here or if you're listening online and you're without Jesus Christ, let me invite you to turn to him in repentance and faith and trust him as your Lord and your Savior. And all of us as Christians, there, there are times in our life where we, we decide to set ourselves on the throne of our own hearts. And messages like this call us back to the one who is our Lord. And I'd say if that's you, Christian, and here this morning, and you're living in, in this way, away from Christ, you're not living as if he's your Lord, I would encourage you this morning, call you this morning, to pray to him, confess that to him, and put Jesus back in his rightful place and as the Lord of your heart. Let's pray. Let's pray. Really, as your head is bowed and your eyes are closed, I'm going to encourage you, just before the Lord right now, to pray to him. If you're without Christ, you can call upon him. The Bible promises that whoever calls upon the Lord can be saved. If you call upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he will save your soul. You can do that right now. And believers, let me encourage you to talk to the Lord about your own heart here this morning. What a joy it is, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have all authority. That you are the King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Over this world, over all nations, all politics, all even riots and problems that are taking place, you do not cause sin. Definitely that is not the case. You are not tempted with evil, evil neither tempts, tempteth you either, um, any person. But we are confident that, God, you are the one who is sovereign over all. Jesus Christ, you're the sovereign Lord. And that means you're the Lord of our life. And I pray for each one of us as Lighthouse Bible Church brothers and sisters, we don't want to rule our own life. What a terrible life it is when a person lives in self-rule. It's miserable now. And we believe that if a person does that for the rest of their life, they're not a believer and therefore it's a miserable life for eternity. So I pray for each one of us in here, Lord, may we submit to you today, now, and throughout this week and throughout our life. 
I know there's many going through suffering in here. Some of it's physical. Some of it's just uncertainty. Some of it is from other individuals and from maybe even pressures at work. I pray for grace and strength for each one of these Christians in here. May they glorify you by setting apart Christ as holy in their hearts. And I pray for those who are without Christ. We want to see, we want to see anyone that's listening, we want, to, we want them to come to Christ. We want to see our, our city come to Christ. We want to see our country turn to you. And Father, do what it takes in our hearts, in our world, to cause us to bend the knee before you as Lord, we pray. And we're so thankful that we as a church can gather here, and we do ask for grace this week and for the rest, really, of this year to keep trusting you no matter what happens, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.